Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Corporate innovation is at the heart of any business success. My guest today, Bruno Peschetz, helps business leaders innovate profitably and he's a rare innovator who can claim he's actually worked on a regulation-defying freight train and an award-winning board game for teaching entrepreneurship and innovation. With 10 years of experience in different industries including defence, manufacturing, education, entertainment and financial services, he has delivered projects that have had a positive impact on the GDP of several countries, succeeded and failed inventing and innovating, and overcome several problems and challenges with no obvious solutions. In addition to his corporate experience with brands like DMB and Kongsberg Group, Bruno is deeply involved with the global entrepreneurial community. He co-founded Norwegian lean startup Circle, Norway's largest lean startup community and founder Institute Norway, the world's premier idea stage accelerator and startup launch program. He often serves as a mentor and judge at various accelerators, incubators and events across the globe. His academic credentials include a master's degree with a distinction in industrial engineering and management, specialization in production and quality engineering and advanced management diploma with specialization in strategy and innovation. He's also been trained by Toyota in corporate value creation and innovation. Bruno is currently undertaking a doctoral doctorate in organisational change with a peculiar focus on the issues with innovation in large enterprises. He's been a passionate practitioner of martial arts since 1997. He lives in Oslo, Norway with the love of his life, Tamara. And today we're here to discuss the politics of corporate innovation. Welcome, Bruno. Thank you, Amber. So happy to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, me too. Look, I'd love to know what young Bruno wanted to be when he grew up. Considering your sort of CV and your interest in engineering innovation, was that something you thought as a kid you'd be pursuing? Were you going to be an astronaut or an engineer? And kind of what ended up happening from, from your young age to, I guess, when you started your career? So I, I usually say I was uh, one of those uh, lucky kids or lucky people that knew what I wanted to do since they were little kids. So uh, th- this is a story from my parents. I don't remember it, but I trust them. But they basically told me before I started going to elementary school during the assessment, I basically took a piece of paper and I drew a robot. And then I went to the psychologist and explained how does this robot work? And basically after that, a- a- everything just uh, followed and was building on that. You know, I immediately went to high school that was about robotics. I enrolled in engineering university after that, studied aeronautical engineering, then industrial engineering, and then continued the career in that. And I would say that innovation kind of space where I'm in today was a natural evolution of that. And I'll tell you why. So while I was studying to be an engineer, I realized that it wasn't just mechanical systems that I was interested in, but that I was very interested in the interface 
and the interaction between us humans and the world around us, including obviously mechanical systems. And that is something that later on, when I started my career as an engineer in defense industry, I realized that it isn't just about products or technical solutions, but also about humans. What, what do we perceive to be valuable? How do we react to things? How do we use products and services? And that is how I ended up where I am today. Oh, that sounds like you kind of, yeah, you're one of those people that knew very early and a lot of people don't. So that's fantastic that you could capitalize on that. Corporate innovation can be defined as the process of enterprises implementing innovation opportunities into existing business models. Established companies who engage in corporate innovation typically have a dedicated team who might be working towards this innovation effort. I'm curious to know in your in your experience and in your view, is that always the case? Can innovation be embedded in a business culture so that everyone has a chance to do it? Or is it really about having that team which is driving it and dedicated exclusively to that process? Well, Ambert, there is innovation and there is innovation. So can it be possible? Of course it can. But let's let's talk a little bit more practical. So first, before we take too deep of a dive, you know that innovation is one of those words. You ask 10 people what it means, you're going to get 20 definitions. Correct. <laughs> uh, so, 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 so just before taking a deep dive, I'm not here to tell you or anyone listening what is the definition. But I will share what is my definition so that you know what do I mean when I'm, you know, answering your questions or discussing some concepts. So to me, I'm working with a very broad definition that I still find usable. And that is innovation is something new that creates value. Now, two important qualifiers. New, not to the history of mankind, but new to the customer, the recipient of this innovation, and new to the creator, the company, the innovator. So if innovator never did this before, and if the customer has never seen that before, that's for me good enough to consider that new. And value, value must be bi-directional. So there must be value creation, obviously, for the recipient, the customer, but also for the innovator. Because what's the point of creating all these cool things if you go out of business? And again, this sounds obvious, but I cannot tell you how many innovative ideas didn't actually create value for one of the sides. And that's a very dangerous thing. So that's, that's my take on innovation. Now, now to your question. Where companies make a mistake is actually when they focus, especially large ones, when they focus too much on setting up the elite innovation team or those innovators out there, they go out. Exactly. They... I'm, I'm picturing these special people in their own little bubble, like navigating around the business. Exactly, exactly. And what they don't realize is they think, you know, they set up the innovation teams or the innovation division the same they would set up an elite project team that's tasked, you know, with some very difficult problem or executing a critical project. But what they're accidentally creating is an environment for the innovators to fail. In my opinion and in my experience, whenever you're setting up any innovation team, section, division, call it whatever you'd like, they must be part of the unit that has profit and loss responsibility because innovation is about value creation. If you set them outside as a support unit, what will happen is that others in the organization will expect, well, it's their job to innovate. You know, now I can spend my budgets on continuous improvement on other stuff, on things that are more important. At the same time, they will expect them to build profit and loss or profit, not loss, profit in a very short term period, which is impossible. So specifically, when we're looking at really transformative, radical, disruptive ideas, we're looking at time frames of five plus years. 
So that means that you will have at least five years of reporting nothing but loss. Try doing that in a large corporate. You're going to get thrown out in two years, three years. In exactly. Life. So basically at the heart of it, innovation takes time to really make it fly, to make it work. Exactly. And another, another mistake that comes from trying to organize in that way is uh, thinking that innovation happens in uh, big banks. That, you know, you have this legendary team and legendary innovator, you know, like Steve Jobs just woke up one day and had a brilliant idea or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or whomever. But the thing is, for organizations to actually have profitable innovation, they must treat innovation like workout. You don't wake up one day and go to the gym and try to lift, I don't know, 300 kilos. You're just going to hurt yourself. You need to go there every day or every second day and work out daily. Practicing your muscle, growing your muscle, growing, growing your resilience. And the same thing is with innovation. You must do a lot of small innovation projects, things that aren't so sexy or crazy or radical, all the small stuff. And you need to be doing that daily so that your people are actually developing innovation skill set. And then when the big opportunity comes, you're much well positioned to actually grab it. So... Uh, yeah, th- I think that's a great a- way of thinking about it. You've really unpacked that because it sounds it can sound very lofty and just like you say, people like innovation might be instant. Innovation, if it doesn't produce results quickly, it won't work. But it sounds like it's like almost like building blocks that you've just got to keep going and have a few failures and then tweak and refine as we go. Absolutely. So th- that, that's a really good summary, Amber. Excellent. So a 2020 McKinsey study shows innovation is in crisis. And the quote from this particular study I read said, the COVID-19 pandemic has upended nearly every aspect of life from the personal, how we live and work, to the professional, how companies interact with their customers and how customers choose and purchase products and services, how supply chains deliver them. However, more than three quarters also agree that this crisis will create significant new opportunities for growth although this varies obviously from industry to industry. What are some of the ways you've seen that happen in the past couple of years? And do you think that momentum will keep happening longer term or has this been a really radical period for lots of different industries and businesses to innovate? Okay, so one thing that has happened in the last, has been happening over the last three years is that behaviours have been changing dramatically driven by external factors, covid then the measures, then now what's happening in Europe, and so on. Unfortunately, I do not think that the same pace of change will continue once this has passed, because you know when, when we look at historical data, unfortunately, we like our status quo. But what people are forgetting, that both in nature and in business, the natural order of things is decay, not stagnation. Yes. So if, yes. if we leave things at peace, they will decay away. That's the natural order of things. So the companies that are trying to maintain the status quo, they're actually just stagnating. They're not improving. And this is where innovation teams and even continuous improvement teams are very, very important. Another thing that I've been seeing is that the companies that tried to kind of uh, continue with their existing business models and existing strategies, basically trying to ignore the changes in reality and trying to weather the storm, they did not do so well. Because we had limited information. First, when, when COVID came, we thought, oh, you know, few weeks, oh, few months, oh, a year. And here we are exactly. in the third year. <laughs> so, That's right. And do you think 
think some industries obviously naturally were better at it than others. Obviously, things like tech companies or even financial services, I mean, they could make their their workforce work from home and still operate pretty much at full capacity through using technology like Zoom meetings and, you know, access to the cloud and things like that. But I guess some other industries that would be nearly impossible to do very quickly anyway in the time frame we needed during COVID. And this was really interesting. So for me, I'm I'm a Croatian living in Norway, and it was really interesting seeing what you're describing. So financial service industry is a very interesting one to discuss because it's very dependent on country by country basis. So the sooner or the older the financial industry is in the country, the less digitized they are. So, for example, if in Europe you compare UK financial sector with Norwegian financial sector or Albanian financial sector or something like that, there will be huge differences because ones got their financial technology basically in 2000s and others got it, I don't know, (laughs) two centuries ago. So there was a big, big difference. Yeah, there, there was a big, big difference in how they actually adjusted to this. I don't know, people are making jokes to this day, you know, digital transformation was driven by COVID. And that is partially true. So, for example, Microsoft Teams would never see such adoption had this not happened. Zoom. No, that's right. Because even Zoom, it existed. I think I used it. I look, I do media training with people, but I reckon I did in five years 10 Zoom meetings. And then the last two, I've probably done about 500 Zoom meetings. Exactly. So uh, these technologies did exist, but then saw uh, significant growth. And w- what was really interesting is uh, was friction in the hospitality industry. So in hospitality industry, for example, hotel chains, motel chains, Airbnbs and, and those of the kind suffered greatly. Restaurants initially suffered, but then came in adjacent innovation, adjacent sector, which is food delivery explosion in food delivery businesses then helped bounce back to the whole restaurant sector or at least those that were willing to kind of open to food delivery providers because food delivery providers usually take a commission from both sides and of course some restaurants were just like we we are never going to do that we are this and that we are not in that type of experience that's right like i'm thinking fine dining for example i mean i know some in australia there was a few businesses who did you could get your five star you know fancy napkins delivered and the whole meal and everything but i imagine long term that would probably be a bit cost prohibitive for the restaurant as much as people Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you're not going to do that every week. (laughs) Yeah, but in general, I mean, uh, this is where customer experience really comes into play. And does your business understand actually the business you're in? Because you're much more than just serving the product, a fine meal. You're in the business of providing a specific experience. Can you do that by sending in expensive napkins in addition to to the meal? So, you know, all, all, all this was fascinating. Now, in terms of companies that actually did better, I wouldn't classify them as IT or this or that, but rather companies that were already investing in innovation before and were moderately good at it. Why? Because innovation capabilities are in essence about handling uncertainty, handling the unknown. So it doesn't matter if you're in the business of, well, fine dining or if you're in the business of uh, shipping software, if you're good at innovation, you should be much better positioned to handle the uncertainty itself, whatever that might mean. Another thing, I think at the beginning, when you were saying that innovation is is being upended or, or something along those lines, 
when, when this started happening, I was speaking to an executive and he told me, Bruno, in my company, they're killing innovation projects left and right. They're just stopping them in their tracks. They're pulling the budgets. Everybody's afraid. Uh, they're starting to save. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And I said, good. That's really good. Because most of innovation investments lead to value destruction for big companies. In most wow, cases, that's it's, a, it's a waste of money. I mean, what, what's fascinating, Amber, is that even though there's now so much about how to innovate better, so much about different processes, more than 70% of new ideas still fails because they are something that nobody wants. So we know yeah. what's the real I was going to say, it's about, it's about the audience and the target market. Although, I mean, you could argue, and this might be something you have much more experience in than me, and I'm just thinking as a, as a consumer here, not as a, a tech expert, you know, originally the, the first smartphone, I didn't want one of those. I couldn't see the, the desire. I didn't want to take a photo on my phone. I wanted my phone to be a phone. Obviously, that's generational. I'm Gen X. That's just, you know, I didn't grow up with this sort of technology. But those first early iPhones, I couldn't understand why anyone would want that. Who wants to be contacted all the time? Who wants their email on their phone? But over time, it became inevitable to me and I felt like not kicking and screaming, but I certainly wasn't an early adopter of those things. And I would argue that do we need it? No, but we all have one, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. Well, it makes absolute sense, Amber. And you and I, I would call us, uh, we are laggards or late yeah, majority. And that is, you know, that, that's, that's not bad by itself. Of course, to companies that are trying to innovate, they would not be looking for people like you and me. They would be looking for early adopters of their ideas. But that's they would right. Realize- I, wasn't, I wasn't lined up around the block overnight. Do you remember who we used to queue up? I'm sure this happened in Europe. It happened in Australia for the brand new Apple product. Like they'd sleep outside the Apple store. Like I could never understand that. Just to be the first to have it yeah i i do remember those days thankfully those are those are behind us <laughs> that's funny yeah absolutely and i think you know over time you know as you say like it depends about obviously the mass appeal of the phone was the fact that well i couldn't have survived my business could not have survived during the pandemic without that kind of technology i am curious to ask you though do large organizations tend to have a harder time innovating i'm being very generalistic here i know versus that smaller more agile business who can maybe be nimble, try a few things faster, fail fast maybe, and be agile in hard times? Or does that not really come into it? Does the size of the business matter? There is certain misconception that uh, small, smaller businesses are better innovators, that they are kind of uh, the mavericks, the, the change makers, uh, the movers and shakers, etc. The size is not that important. What is important is the ability to align focus and establish efficient communication and support channels. What I mean by that, I'll I'll explain in a second. What's the big benefit actually of small business is that they have only one strategy. Their product strategy is their business strategy, is their innovation strategy, is their overall strategy. They don't need a strategy for procuring toilet paper. They don't need a strategy for engaging with (laughs) vendors. They just have one single strategy that allows them to have much easier alignment behind specific objectives and focus on the specific objectives. And on the third one, because the smaller organization is, the easier is for them to iron out any misunderstandings. You don't need to spend several months before you realize that John completely misunderstood Jane and that they've been working on a completely different thing for six months and now you need to bring them back together. 
So a big company can actually outperform any small company when it comes to innovation, as long as they're able to create the things I told you about. So for example, two clients I work with, we have selected one large business unit and we have ironed out exactly these things. So we have selected few people from the top management, we have selected few people from the middle management and few frontline teams. And then we set up, okay, this is our innovation strategy. This is our box that we play in. These are our boundaries. These are the things that we measure. This is how innovation teams can get access to legal, procurement, accounting, IT, you know, services like that. You know, go and innovate. Bam. From basically having seven ideas in 12 months, we came to seven ideas in less than 12 weeks. Is it perfect? No. Is it better? Much. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You're very definitive about that, which I guess with all your experience, you'd be able to, to share that experience with all of us. So what are some of the tried and true or best ways to execute corporate innovation and why? Is there like two or three that you can kind of just unpack for us? Yes. So first, corporate innovation is something different compared to, let's say, just innovation. Corporate innovation has two issues. One is doing innovation. By that, I mean transforming an idea into business. That's one. There's a lot of material on that and a lot of companies focus on that. But the problem of the real problem of corporate innovation is not doing innovation or innovating, but managing innovation. Managing innovation is taking hundreds of these ideas and turning them into money. That's the problem of managing innovation. So the best things that any executive in any industry can do to improve the, the hit rate of their corporate innovation is to actually very clearly specify their innovation strategy. Innovation strategies should have a narrative around why in the first place are you even investing in innovation and acceptable answers aren't to be innovative, to be attractive, to be attractive to employees and to make money. Of course, everybody invests in innovation for those reasons. Be specific. What specific market share do you want to get? Do you want to penetrate another market share you never had before? Do you want to change customer behavior? What, what do you want to do? Have it specific. Then the next thing is make a list of the things that you do not want to invest in, innovations you do not want to take. Be specific. You know, this specific customer needs we are not looking to satisfy. These specific business models we are not looking to invest in. These technologies we do not want to use. For example, in Norway, it's very common that different industries are actually downsizing their physical footprint. They don't want to open more branches. They want a more digital society and a more digital customer. So they would have on their no list, we do not want to invest in any business model that depends on opening new branches. As easy and as difficult as that. And then the third part of innovation strategy is the actual yes list. What customer problems and needs do you want to satisfy? What jobs do you want them to get better what business models do you want to invest in maybe something subscription based maybe something with recurring revenue what type of technologies you want to invest in things that will allow our customers to have an undisturbed customer chain from the beginning until the end things like that are critical remember what i told you before alignment focus communication channels so that is the job of top management and then the next best thing they can do is <laughs> communicate that Take that to their organization and say, hey, this is where we want to go. These are our boundaries. 
because you shouldn't go to your employees and tell them, hey, deliver these three ideas. That's nonsensical approach that will just waste your time. Instead, you come and say, hey, this is the playground. Please come with your best ideas and I will provide the resources you need to execute your dream ideas. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's really that's really logical. And I suppose there's probably so much nuance and detail in that. But if people have that roadmap and that understand, particularly like the idea of what you don't want, I think that would be great for lots of people because, you know, bright, shiny object syndrome where you kind of go, but we could do this doesn't necessarily mean you should do that when you're corporate innovating. Exactly, Amber. And and I, I like what you said last, like uh, we could it, we could do it, but we shouldn't do it. And that's a big problem in large corporates because they're very, very big glutens. It's like, you know, just because there's a cake, you don't need to eat all of the cake. You can take a slice. <laughs> you know, you don't need to get sick. Or you could just say no cake for me. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that is sometimes. And what I of, of, always say is if it's good, it'll come back. That's it. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> So who have been your greatest career mentors? Are there one or two that come to mind? And why have they made such an impact in your life or career? Mm-hmm. So a lot of my approach to things, uh, they come from my upbringing, from my father and martial arts in general. My father is a martial artist and kind of, I, I always took inspiration from him and, and kind of the way he, he treats the difficulties of the world and how he handles everything. And that was kind of my modus operandi, and I hope it still is today. I have really only one metric. You know, when I wake up in the morning, can I stand to look myself in the mirror? If answer is no on any given morning, that means dramatical and drastic change is required immediately. I had only three such situations in life. I immediately took action, and I can tell you, Amber, I'm sleeping very well, and I'm leading a a very fulfilled life. Yeah, excellent. And if we spoke again in a year, what would be one thing that you would hope to have changed or innovated, I should say, in your business or career and why? Mm-hmm. What, what you said in the beginning, I'm currently undertaking a doctorate in organizational change with a focus on corporate innovation. And I'm very, very focused on the human side of innovation. So a year from now, I hope to have even deeper understanding and beyond that, have been able to actually communicate that to the rest of the world so that they can benefit from my insights because research for the sake of research isn't really useful. I'm doing this doctorate because I want to make a small change in the world. Yes, that makes sense. No, I wish you all the best with that. And a final takeaway message for us today on the politics of corporate innovation. Final takeaway. Innovation isn't special. Alignment is. Remember that sometimes it's much, much better to be aligned than be correct. Put your ego aside. Yeah, that's great advice. I think we could all do with a bit of that. If you do want to connect further with Bruno, of course, there'll be some details on the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today and getting up extra early on the other side of the world. Until next time, take care. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.